So that is the story of the, the Match Girls, and it all started right here where we're standing. That's Simon Sapper. He spent three decades as a senior national trade union official in the UK and now hosts the Union Dues podcast, which is part of the Labor Radio Podcast Network I've been coordinating for the last few years. Last month when I was in London, Simon took me and my wife Lisa on a fascinating labor history walk that started at the place where many say British trade unionism began, the factory where the historic 1888 Match Girls strike took place. On today's show, we'll share that conversation, which took place on the street outside the former factory, so you'll hear some busy street sounds from time to time. We've also included some audio from Annie Besant's contemporary account of the Match Girls strike, read by Sarah Whitehouse. And... On Labor History in 2. The year was 1879. That was the day that Will Rogers was born in Oolaga, Indian Territory, in what later became Oklahoma. I'm Chris Garlock, and this is Labor History Today. Well, well Chris, uh, um, welcome to London. Welcome to the east end of London. Great uh, to be here. Um, we're standing outside the Bryant and May Match Factory, which is where many people say the the British trade unionism began with the Match Girl strike in 1888. Tell us uh, what a Match Girl was. Well, a Match Girl is someone who literally made matches. So, you know, the little bits of wood with the phosphorus end that you strike to get a light, they made those. And there were 1,400 of them working in this place uh, in the 1880s in terrible, terrible conditions. Uh, So it's not surprising that eventually... They said enough and, uh, and, and went on strike. Uh, the story, of course, is rather more, more detailed than that, but that's basically it. And we can still see the walls of the factory here. And uh, along the way, you, you'll be able to see the porticos that are still very much as they were built, with, with palm trees and fronds decorating the, uh, the entrances. How old were the, were the Mash girls? Young. They were young. They were kids. Kids and young young women, ranging from six to twenty six, prob- probably. Um, and it wasn't just the match girls in the factory. There were people who worked from their homes as well, making the match boxes. And they, I mean, if if, if the kids in the factory got paid very little for fourteen hour days, six days a week, then the people working at home got paid even less, and they even had to provide their own glue and their own string. Oh wow! So it was it was crazy. It was a, and, and that's really, it was, it was so bad, that's what, that's what captured the attention of some social reformers in the 1880s. Uh, there was a meeting just down the road from, from where we're standing where someone got up and, and declaimed Bryant and May, the owners of the factory, for the terrible conditions that they imposed on, on their workers because it's not just the long hours. It was a very dangerous job. Working with white phosphorus, which is what they did, was well known as early as the 1850s to be in some cases fatal you got what was called fossy jaw your teeth would fall out then your your jaw would be eaten away it was like a bone cancer uh, and Bryant and May set up their factory worked with white phosphorus when they knew how dangerous it was and the girls and the young women couldn't even be sure of getting the money that they were supposed to because there were a range of sanctions and fines that were imposed if your workbench wasn't tidy if you were talking if you were you know slacking in some way 
I mean, all trade unionists will recognise the the stereotype, which is sadly accurate, of this overbearing supervisor who makes sure that the bosses are insulated from criticism and the workers are exploited even more. Can you talk about what was going on with the, the, the UK or British labour movement at the time? At the, at the time, there was a frantic pace of industrialization which had started over a hundred years before and it was very very labor intensive there was very little reg- regulation any time any attempts to organize were usually seen as an almost uh, treasonable offense by the state of, of the day uh, your listeners will probably be aware of the Tolpond masters who were transported from the British countryside in the southwest to Australia for just forming an association. So it was very unusual and at the time of the match girls unprecedented for groups of workers in these very intensive, dangerous, low-paid industries to say, we're not having this anymore. Uh, but after the match girls strike in 1888, quickly it was followed by the London dock strike in 1889, 1890 which is no surprise really because the match girls were the daughters, the partners, the kids of the people who worked on the docks and the the dockers thought they can do it, that empowers us to do it as well. So, but I'm curious, I I would have thought just looking at it that, that the dock workers would have been the more militant and the more likely to strike. So it's very interesting to me that it was the match girls who would seem to have the least power, the least leverage to go out. So you can talk a little bit about how that happened? Well, the Match Girl story uh, properly, I suppose, starts in the middle of June 1888, when social reformers had one of their regular public meetings in, in, in the areas and made explicit reference to what was happening here at Bright, here at Brighton and May. And one of the speakers said that there should be a boycott of the products made here, the matches made here, because the conditions were so bad. At a meeting of the Fabian Society, Miss Clementina Black gave a capital lecture on female labour and urged the formation of a consumer's league, pledged only to buy from shops certified clean from unfair wages. H.H. Champion, in the discussion that followed, drew attention to the wages paid by Bryant and May while paying an enormous dividend to their shareholders. Herbert Burroughs and I interviewed some of the girls, got lists of wages, of fines. A typical case is that of a girl of 16, a piece worker. She earns four shillings a week and lives with a sister employed by the same firm who earns as much as eight or nine shillings a week. Out of the earnings, two shillings a week is paid for the rent of one room. The child lives only on bread and butter and tea, alike for breakfast and dinner, but related with dancing eyes that once a month she went to a meal where you get coffee and bread and butter and jam and marmalade and lots of it. So the next day, uh, 16th of June, uh, uh, a social reformer by the name of Annie Besant came down and had a chat with the workers and was horrified by what they told her and was so horrified that a week later in the magazine that she edited and published called The Link, she published an article under the headline of White Slavery and made very clear what was happening here and her disgust with with it. We published the facts under the title of White Slavery in London and called for a boycott of Bryant and May's matches. I was promptly threatened with action for libel, but nothing came of it. It was easier to strike at the girls. 
Bryant and May went bonkers. They threatened to sue the link. They were going to sue Annie Besant. They, they demanded a retraction. Annie Besant said, no, nope, not going to. And they went to their workers and said, listen, girls, women, we want you to sign a declaration to say that what Annie Besant has written in the link isn't true. And they refused. And then, of course, you have this ratcheting up of intimidation. You will sign. No, we won't. You will sign or we'll dock your pay. I don't care. I'm not going to sign. You will sign or we'll dock your pay and we'll sack you. Go ahead then. <laughs> and I mean, I mean, the women were not going to lie to protect their employer against reports that were basically true. You've spoken up for us, explained one, and we weren't going back on you. A girl pitched on as their leader was threatened with dismissal. She stood firm. Next day, she was discharged for some trifle. And they all threw down their work, some 1,400 of them. If we ever worked in our lives, Herbert Burroughs and I worked for the next fortnight. A pretty hubbub we created. We asked for money and it came pouring in. We registered the girls to receive strike pay wrote articles, roused the clubs, held public meetings, got Mr Bradlaw to ask questions in Parliament, stirred up constituencies in which shareholders were members, till the whole country rang with the struggle. So, the sackings, the actual sackings, on the 5th of July were the spark that lit the fire. 1,400 women and girls went out on strike, and this was picked up by Annie Besant, uh, it was picked up in the House of Commons. There were questions asked in Parliament. There were editorials written in newspapers, including the Times. There were mass meetings held of the strikers. They formed a strike committee. And eventually, the London Trades Council, an embryonic body at that time, got involved as well. London Trades Council and the strike committee asked for and were granted a meeting with the employer, with Bryant and May, they put forward their demand to resolve the dispute, which included uh, forming a union, a, rec a recognised trade union. It included a restoration of pay that had been deducted. Uh, it in included a range of safety measures as well. And the company caved in. Because strikes don't work, do they? <laughs> never work, <laughs> never achieve their objectives. Uh, and it was a spectacular victory, which was widely celebrated by the match girls and was not just the first industrial dispute, probably the first successful industrial dispute in, 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 the, in the UK. So it really was a triumph for organising, it was a triumph in PR terms, it was a triumph for building a coalition that enabled them to get over the line, and it was a triumph in terms of emancipation, and people who you might look at and think, they have no agency, but they had huge agency, huge agency. And a number of things kind of rolled forward from that. You know, there was the Union of Women Matchmakers that the strike committee morphed into the union committee. Uh, you had so other social reformers, uh, such as William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, who built his own match factory, paid better wages, made people work less hours, didn't use white phosphorus. So that is the story of the, the match girls, and it all started right here where we're standing. So two things, if you could sort of describe, because this is the actual, what we're looking at, if you could describe it. Um, 
as with so many things in London, I mean, you do have original buildings, of course. Uh, and then I'd like you to talk about what it is now. Well, the, 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 the building's really quite, quite large. I suppose, I don't know if there's a standard unit for how, much, how, how long a block is in, in, in the States. But, I mean, this, this, would, this covers probably about four blocks, I would say. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a big place. And it's built in, a, in quite, a, quite a Latinate style. Bit, almost a bit baroque in terms of the columns and the flourishes and, uh, uh, and the, the decorations. And now it has been converted into what they call the bow quarter. In the, in the UK, if you find anywhere that's got the word quarter after it, it means it's been gentrified uh-huh. hugely. And this has, and this has been converted into, into luxury flats. Uh, and they seem to be pretty fully, fully used. So I would imagine that if we could get, get inside, which we can't because there's a very sturdy gate and a very stern-looking security guard, <laughs> we probably wouldn't find much of the interior left, but but you get a you get a sense of the size and presence that this this would have, and 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 it's tucked into a corner by a bus bus garage. There's a busy railway line just down down, down the road. Uh, this is quite a busy a, a busy street, um, and you get you can you can imagine how oppressive it would have been, especially on winter mornings and uh, for for people who feel so disempowered to to have to come and work here in such terrible conditions and conversely the feeling of absolute jubilation uh, that workers uh, in struggle often experience when they make a stand mm-hmm. so, uh, the the building itself is really interesting because it is it does have these sort of it, it's it says, uh, brick it's quite beautiful it's got these archways but it also, it's, it's clearly walled. It almost has a, dare I say, a little bit of a prison feel. Yeah, yes, that, absolutely. Right? It, it, it does. And I think it's partly that for, for, all, the, for, for all the ornate kind of architect, architectural or design flourishes, this kind of stereotypical Victorian terracotta brick uh, appearance is very... You know, it's it's very kind of custodial. Right, right. <laughs> Good word for it. Good word. For uh, it. And if if you were to look at uh, if you look at most British prisons, mm-hmm. which are, were mostly built in the Victorian era, you would have an exactly the same feel. Okay. Actually, so so your 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 instincts, Chris, are absolute absolutely right, and and it's appropriate that actually that's how it looks because that's how it was. So we have a plaque here, which I'd like you to describe, but also. Given sort of the the key r- role of this strike in in British labor history, I would expect to see more some sort of monument or I don't know. I mean, I mean, it, it just says you know the Match Girl strike took place here at the Bryant May Works in 1888. Boom, that's it. That is it. <laughs> it's that, a little understated, even for the Brits. That's all you need to know. Uh, but of course, there's so much more to the story as, we, as we've been dis- discussing. And the problem is, and the, the, the kind of the injustice is, is that there is no monument to the Match Girls and what they, what they achieved. There are bits and pieces. There's a blue plaque here. We'll go down the road and we'll see a plaque that commemorates their involvement in... There's a plaque that commemorates their involvement uh, in fighting a proposed match tax that they threatened would would depress their wages still further in the eighteen uh, eight, in the early eighteen eighties, um, there's a plaque to to a fountain that was used to commemorate 
that event. But there is no particular monument, and that's why an organisation called the Match Girls Memorial Trust, who do a fantastic job, uh, and many of the descendants of the original Match Girls, Match Girls are active in that, in that organisation, the Match Girls Memorial Trust, is campaigning for a memorial, a suitable memorial, uh, to, to the Match Girls. The situation is so bad that actually one of the leaders of the Match Girls strike, uh, Sarah Chapman, was buried in an unmarked grave, mm. and it was only by chance that her great-granddaughter found the grave just before it was about to be what's called remounded, oh, wow. which is got rid of to make way for newer graves. Uh, and there is now a very active campaign to make sure that there's a proper grave, proper headstone, proper memorial for what, for what Sarah and her colleagues did. What is the plaque made out of, and why is it so high? <laughs> we're, we're talking, it's, it's about, I'd say, what, 15, 15, 15 feet off the ground, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, it, it's, it's made, it, it's made of, uh, of porcelain. Uh, it's, it's, it's a pale blue background with, with white script. And it, that is the style that's been developed by the organization that awards and installs the plaques, the English Heritage, which is a, which is a charity, but it's a charity that, uh, that, that looks after, as the name suggests, English Heritage. <laughs> uh, and, and, and these are usually placed, placed quite up high, um, probably out of habit, but also probably to avoid anyone <laughs> possibly defacing it defacing them or, or or hacking them out the wall and running away with them um but that's that's if you if you walk around london particularly you will see a, a variety of, of of blue plaques on places of note places where famous people lived or where big events hap happened and they're usually about 15 feet off the off the ground we'll probably talk more about this at some of the other sites but maybe we could start to address it now which is it, it, certainly in the States, we have this issue where, you know, people don't know their labor history. It's not taught in schools or not taught very much in schools. And it is even a plaque like this uh, is, is hard to come by. Um, we, you know, this is a country that's full of history. <laughs> you seem to like to put up plaques for just about everything. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about how, how does the... Know, the rich labor history in this country get represented in plaques and monuments and statues and so on? Well, we, we're, we're fortunate in the sense that we, we have a long labor history in, in, in the UK. And despite the efforts of people who are philosophically hostile to collective action and collect, collectivism, we're still here. We're still the largest social movement in, in, in the country. Six million people are members of, uh, of trade unions. So we are conscious of our history on the basis that if you don't learn the lessons from your history, you will repeat the mistakes. And therefore, the monuments and the celebrations are important, are important to us, to remind us that we do win the odd one or two, uh, and to remind us of, of, of the, the giants whose shoulders we, st we stand on today. So it's not just the blue plaques, and the English Heritage is not a particularly progressive organisation. I mean, although I'm sure some people would find it subversive, which says more about them than anything else. We have uh, the the idea of plaques has been has been borrowed. For example, the firefighters' union uh, places a red plaque where their members have fallen in the line of duty, and that's a very you know that, that, it makes you think these people do a really difficult job uh, on behalf of the re the rest of us. 
So the idea of plaques is, 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 is well established. The idea of statues is, is also well established, except there's a problem about finding a place to put them, often. Um, so so th- there's no problem about statues and, and, and busts. Um, and we also have big celebrations that we, we, uh, we celebrate on an annual basis, such as the Tolpod Martyrs Festival. Uh, down down in the West Country, we that's closely followed by the Durham Miners Gala, uh, which it, which is a bringing together of the trade union family uh, from from across the country to to celebrate and to uh, and to renew. I suppose these things the, these things are, are are important in terms of renewal and rejuvenation. And 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 you walk away from them and you think, yeah, we're part of a movement. We're part of a movement, and that's a living, breathe, breathing movement. Of course, it's not, al- it's not always straightforward. Um, the, the challenges that, that we face yeah, in, in the, U- the UK are, are multiplying. and We have a deeply hostile government that wants to effectively outlaw the right to strike in many, in many sectors. Uh, so that makes what the Match Girls did all the more relevant. It makes commemoration of it all the more important. Well, thank you for sharing that with us. My pleasure. The girls behaved splendidly, stuck together, kept brave and bright all through. The London Trades Council finally consented to act as arbitrators and a satisfactory settlement was arrived at. The girls went into work and fines and deductions were abolished. Better wages paid. The Matchmakers Union was established. Still the strongest women's trade union in England. Oh, <laughs> 